We are in Titus. A couple more weeks. Uh, we'll take a little break. Some guest speakers. Perry Jones actually will be here. And then we'll jump into the book of Isaiah come this fall. Um, but right now we are back in Titus in this little pastoral epistle that is just, just wonderfully rich and, and packed with such wonderful and glorious truth. Our series, as you know, is called The Gospel-Ordered Church. So this morning we are in chapter 3, the final chapter, verses 1 through 8. Let me read that to you as we jump into the text. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible word this morning. Young Pastor Titus, after being mentored and discipled by the Apostle Paul, is left on an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Crete. Shortly after Paul leaves him there, he sends a letter to this young pastor reminding him to put what remained into order, starting with appointing Elders, pastors in every town, chapter 1, verse 5. And then Paul jumps into the matter of character, because character does matter. And he gives these character traits of what should be exhibited by these pastors slash elders, leaders of the church. And he also tells us how important it is for these leaders for God's family, who lead and oversee the family of God, that they have the ability to stand firm in the word without wavering, without reducing its importance so that they can, chapter 1, verse 9, give instruction to sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. We've said all along that Paul is mostly concerned about the message of the gospel. And that is exhibited not only in the, the way he explains over and over, we'll see that today, over and over the truth of the gospel, but also because we learn in chapter 1 that there have been false teachers have infiltrated and in, has been infecting the church with false gospel or false gospel, this work-based salvation. And somehow you can be made right, you can be loved and accepted by God by one's own moral achievements rather than by grace alone, in, by faith alone, or through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. But another major theme has been surfacing. We'll see it last week. We'll see it again this week and next week. That really flows from this main message of the gospel. And that is how does one live? What does it look like in the life of those who have embraced the gospel? Who've embraced salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How does it manifest itself out in our life? We've looked at chapter 1. 
how it, the gospel tra- uh, uh, affects leaders, shows itself with the leaders of the church. Chapter 2, we're about how it manifests itself in our homes and in our churches. Now, chapter 3, it is all about how the gospel and what the gospel looks like while we live in this world on the mission, the missio day of God. What does it look like? In fact, the word works in Titus is mentioned over six times. Chapter one, verse, excuse me, chapter two, verse seven, he tells Titus, be a model for good works. Chapter two, verse 14, be zealous for good works. Chapter three, verse eight in our text, devoid, excuse me, devote yourself to good works. Chapter three, verse eight. And just in case, you know, Titus and the church forgets it, six verses later, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says the same thing. Devote yourself to good works. So when you hear teachers of our day, what's known as the hyper-grace movement, or the false teaching, that what you do doesn't matter, you can point to Titus. Because what you do and how you live does matter. Obviously, it doesn't matter in the sense of working or earning your salvation, But it does matter as we show the reality of our salvation in what we do. I like to say, like when a crime is committed, there is always evidence. The evidence is not the crime, but it does reveal that a crime has been committed. Evidence of a new life has begun, will show itself in the work and the life lived out in that believer. Now, for sure, we cannot earn our salvation. I get that, but let's not neglect or ignore the clear teaching of the New Testament with the expectations upon believers to devote ourselves to good works. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 2. We saw clearly how important it was for the gospel and the work of grace in our lives to produce a life that glorifies the Lord. Paul gave instructions and expectations of young men and young women, older men, older women, and bond, bond service in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you remember for last week in verse 11, he, he, he brings it together. He links the, the expectations with chapter 2, verse 11, the conjunction 4. For the grace of God has appeared. Everything I've said, all the expectations, because God's grace has appeared. Training us, verse 12 of chapter 2, the God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In other words, the grace of God has come in Christ, in the gospel, and it trains us, it educates us, it instructs us. We said last week, it even chastises us when necessary so that we live in a gospel-centered, God-glorifying, grace-filled life. We said last week, it's not, not only that the grace of God saves us, it is the same grace of God that is the foundation of truth and the power by which the Holy Spirit uses to transform and to mold us and to really help us to live a life of grace in all that we do and all that we say. And where does that truth come from and where does that power come from? We learned last week, chapter 2, verse 13. The hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, verse 14, chapter 2, gave himself up for us to redeem us, rescued us from lawlessness, Purified himself for purified for himself a people for his own possession. Now look what it says, chapter two, verse fourteen. Talking about the grace of God. Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Paul will take that same order, right? He'll, he'll, he'll explain the same thing. You have the gospel, you have salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. And that leads us to good deeds. And now he'll take that same reality, that same truth, and apply it to the Missio Dei. The mission of God, the mission for God's people, the mission for God's church, the demonstration of the gospel, the showing the world the love and grace and mercy and generosity of good deeds, and then declaring to the world the truth of what we just read, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who forgives sins. That order is so important. So what we'll do is, as we look at the grace of God in the world, as we live on mission, let's look at the first eight verses. We get to, um, excuse me, we get to verse eight, which is going to hit it quickly and end. We'll pick it up again next week. So he tells us four things. One, be submissive to those in authority. Two, there's a slavery from our former passion that we have to recognize. Three, salvation is by the mercy of God, not by any works. And four, serving others through our faith. So number one, chapter two, verse 15, the very last verse, it says, declare these things, Titus. Paul said, declare the exhort, rebuke, authority. Now in chapter three, verse one, he says, remind them. Same authority. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Now, Unless you're living under a rock, there's been a lot of talk about when we should and should not submit to ruling authorities, to rulers and authorities. Let, let me, let me, I'm going to say a few things today, but let me first say we have to put this in context and remember that Titus is getting this letter from the Apostle Paul, and they are under the authority of Rome, not a really nice king, okay? Tortures Christians, murders Christians, burns them alive, and even just for the heck of it and for sport, throws them into arena with wild animals to see what happens next. That's the king. And Titus is hearing this from Paul, and Paul is reminding Titus and the church of Crete to remind them, present tense, imperative, mood. It is, it is commanding them to keep on reminding them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, being obedient to them. Now, there, there are a lot of passages that, passages that speak about ruling authorities and the responsibility believers have. Romans 13 is one that's often quoted. But let me just go down a short bunny trail here and explain a little bit of what this means. Because I think when we read passages like this, the first thing we need to understand is this is not a blanket statement covering all of what Scripture says about living in this world, fallen, broken world, and living under governing authorities. Okay? Scripture does not command the Christ follower to blindly believe and to blindly obey governing authorities. They don't have the ultimate authority. Governments do not wield ultimate power. But instead, governments, according to Scripture, emperors, kings, heads of states, are granted authority by the one who reigns and rules in supreme over all authority, and his name is Jesus. It's been granted them by Jesus. In fact, in Romans 13... Governments, we are told, are established under God's authority and should act in accordance with their God-appointed role within its God-appointed limits for the good of the citizens in which they rule over. We find in Titus, in Romans 13, 1 Peter, that we are commanded to God, by God, excuse me, to obey the governing authorities, to live in accordance with all the laws that are not directly, explicitly at odds with the word of God. 
And here's the rub. Let's be honest. There are some things that we as Americans hold closely to the vest that we believe we have rights under what's known as the Constitution, our constitutional rights. The question becomes, and you all can tar and feather me later, I don't care, is are, are the things that have been granted to us, are they explicitly taught in the Word of God? Are we given that authority under Scripture to violate or to disapprove or to not obey governing authority simply because it falls within a document, a great document, written for our nation? I have very serious concerns about that. I'm, 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 I'm going to throw it out there. I'm a Second Amendment guy. But you'd be hard-pressed to find Scripture that says, Thou shalt rebel against the government. You, if you find one, you let me know. You give me a call. Now, doesn't mean that we should keep quiet either. Especially true in a democratic republic where it's our duty as a responsibility, our duty and responsibility of citizens to examine our public servants, to press and to discern and to ask questions and to, to, you know, do whatever's necessary legally to have things change. I get that. But disobeying governing authorities according to Scripture must come from the Word of God, must be bathed in prayer, must have good godly counsel. It shouldn't be taken lightly. It's a decision not made in haste. And a good principle, a guiding principle, as, as Paul calls us, as the Scripture calls us to live as model citizens, is simply this. When government clearly commands what God forbids, and when God forbids what government commands, we should must... We must obey God and not man. Let me say it again. When government clearly commands, tells us something that God says don't do, and when God forbids don't do this but government says do, then we must obey God, not man. Okay, let me give you two clear principles in Scripture. Daniel chapter 3, you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar tells not, not just the Jewish people, all people in the land, bow down and worship me. I'm the, I am God, you worship me. Well, the Bible tells us that we should worship only God. And what do three Jewish boys do who love the Lord? No, I'm not doing that. That's a violation of the word of God. We're going to obey God. We're not going to obey man. We're told to do something that God in his word clearly commanded them not to do. We're not doing it. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're charged. They're brought in. Actually, they're beaten up and they're charged. Don't do that anymore. And what does Peter say? And the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. They were told to stop doing something that God says, no, I want you to do. Those are clear scripture. And yet these people said, no, we're not doing it. So I thought, let's get real practical this morning. Why not? Let's talk about COVID-19. You know, remember that virus? Let me tell you how we walked through it. We were told to shut down. We did. We were asked to show shut down. We did it. We submitted. And, and we were told things are getting really bad. And the church shut down for two months. The government asked all the citizens not to gather. They want to flatten the curve. And as things opened up, they started uh, saying things about social distancing, which we did. Mask requirements, which we did. And the church submitted, rightfully so. But when the governing authorities began opening up other venues in the community... And then still prevented God's people from gathering. And the scripture was clear as far as we're concerned. They don't, have, they, don't, they don't tell us when we can gather, how we can gather, assemble the worship. We do that according to the word of God. 
It became clear that they were not acting in the best interest of the citizens, as far as we're concerned, God's people, in direct violation of the word of God. So we decided, no, we're going we're gonna to respond and we're going we're gonna to worship together. And we met outside for two months. Weren't supposed to. We did it. We just felt at that point, you know what? They were overstepping their boundaries. Even their God-given boundaries for God's people. Everything else was opening. We were going to open. And we did. That's, that's how we walked through it. And we were going to proclaim the gospel. We would be like Peter. And, you know, you can't speak about Jesus. No, we're going to. Liquor stores, tracks. Uh, the, I mean, the uh, gambling casinos were open. Low. Everything began opening up. I'll never forget it. I'm thinking, this ain't right. We could, we could open, and we did it safely. We had masks, we had separate, we did, we did what everyone else was required to do, but we just said this is, this, is, this is a violation of the word of God. And we made that decision. We didn't say, you know, uh, to, to, you know, to disregard our safety, but we thought, you know what? According to Matthew 19, the authority granted to the church, possessed of the kingdom, to preach the gospel. And that's what we did. So I share that with you to say this. As I was going through that, as the pastors were going through that, as we were trying to walk that fine line, what I found the hardest thing for me to do, and maybe it's hard for you to do, is just having the right attitude, right? Having the right attitude. It's really first and foremost about an attitude, not an insubordinate spirit, not a, not a, not a I'm going to do what I want. This passage here in our text is, is shrouded in mission, in the missile day of God, living in this world, God's people, God's church, living among the world. Paul's purpose here, how the submissive believer, chapter 3, verse 1, who is a model citizen, obeying and submitting to every law possible, have an attitude of submission, is then given the opportunity, look what it says, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. From Passively obeying authorities to actively being involved with people's lives, particularly unbelievers, for the purpose of serving them and loving them and being generous to them. It is the outworking of what Jesus said, be be salt of the earth, be light of the world, so, Matthew 5, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. There is so much we could do. There are so many ways that we could love and we could serve and we could do good to others. First, we need to keep our eyes open to the needs of others. Everybody in this room is busy. I get it. Me too. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we're doing and the things that we're doing, caring for our family, meeting the needs of our families. We're consumed by those things. We, we don't see the needs of others. But as we open up our eyes to the world around us, there are a lot of opportunities. Maybe with a word of encouragement to someone. Maybe we could just sit and listen to the hurts and pains of others. Maybe someone needs to smile or practice generosity toward a neighbor. Maybe serving the poor, caring for the weak. Maybe we need to spend time with someone who may be lonely, showing good deeds. Lots of things we can do. I think it's interesting that Paul connects a submissive attitude the governing authorities, with doing good to others. Obviously, I I think in Paul's mind that an argumentative, contentious, rebellious spirit is not really prone to do good things. Paul continues, speak evil of no one, verse 2. Christians are to speak evil of who? No one. Try that one for a while. The word here is the word blasphemy. 
It means to be reviled uh, or to, to defame or to slander, to speak irreverently. Now, there's one thing, listen, to oppose an ideology. It's one thing to oppose a certain political position. I get it. It's quite another thing to speak evil against someone. It is one thing to stand against abortion and to stand up for, for, for biblical view of marriage. It's quite another thing to say, to say, to tweet, to Facebook something that you don't know about someone or that it's just downright mean and disrespectful. That's exactly what Paul says, do not do. Do not speak evil. He says, he continues, he says, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Right? Not, not a quarrelsome person, not a contentious person. So neither offensive nor argumentative. But he says we are to be marked by being gentle. Actually, that word means considerate, being kind, reasonable, long-suffering. Paul writes, as far as possible, on our part, we are seek to live at peace with everyone. Romans 12. Our attitude should be a willingness to defer to others, even, even if we're not getting our own needs met. Paul said, let each of you look out, not just your own interest, but for the interest of others. And then Paul goes on and says, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, that word perfect courtesy, actually that word can be translated gentle. Maybe some of you in your, commentary, in your Bibles you have, but it's a different word um, than the earlier word gentle. This word gentle in the, in the original language means meekness. It's where we get the word meekness. Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness means strength under control. It was used of, of an animal, may say a horse, who is strong and powerful but kept calm by its master. Under control. Power under control. That is, that, that is the humble servant of God, right? It belongs to the man and the woman who have learned to be strong and dependent upon God, to, even in the midst of dis, uh, opposition, hardship, and difficulties. And now we see what Paul is saying. How we live in this world as we live out our lives around people we can either be confident in God, humble servants of God, confident and willing, you know, just being willing to serve and to love people, or we believe we're the sovereign ones. We take, we have the final authority, and we only care about ourselves. Paul said, no, don't do that. Don't do that while, you, while, you, while you're living on mission. Submit to those in authority. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarrels and be gentle. Show courtesy, kindness toward all people. And I love the way, De I want to put this as a separate moment because this is such a, this is hard for me to read too. Because one of the ways in which Paul says, look, one of the ways you can remember to heed these instructions is to appreciate the fact that that's how you once lived. It's very hard to speak evil and act like a fool when you're reminded, yeah, that was me. <laughs> So Paul draws his contrast between how we should act and what we acted, how we acted before we met Christ, before his kindness appeared to us. Verse 4, we'll get to that. He says, for we ourselves, come on, y'all, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves 
the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So let's all admit, before, before God's grace appeared, we too were foolish. Unintelligent and irrational. You say, no, no, not me. I, I, not unintelligent, not, not irrational. Let, let, me, let me put it this way to you. <laughs> All sin is irrational. You're welcome. Puts us all in the same boat. All believers share in a common that at one point all our minds did not comprehend nor respond appropriately to the self-evident truth of God. All of us. We're all disobedient to God. We're all wanted to do our own thing, not his will for our lives. We're all deceived, led astray. Thinking we could save ourselves, justify ourselves. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says that we were kept in darkness by the ruler of this world. Morally and mentally depraved. All of us. We lack sense and sensibility. All of us, he says, were slaves to passions and pleasures. Romans 6. We're not going there now, but you could see how Paul just really explicitly characterizes our sin, our sinful nature in terms of bondage. Jesus said in John 8 that those who practice sin is a slave to sin. And he uses this analogy, Jesus does, of a slave and his master to point to the fact that a slave has no choice, has no will. He'll do the will of the master. He'll do what he is told by the master. They're in bondage to that master. And, and, and a slave is, you know, has an, uh, there's no way that he could break those bonds of his master. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying. We were enslaved to passions and pleasures. In other words, what he's saying is all those things that we placed in the place of God, things we were running after, the passions and pleasures of this world, thinking that that's all I need, that will get me satisfaction. And we chase after these, these pleasures and these passions until at the end of the day, when all is said and done, they don't really satisfy. But what they do is they turn us into slaves chasing and running day in and day out, but they never satisfy. And Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 2, dead in our sins. All follow the enemy. All follow the enemy. We all lived once, he says, in the passions of our flesh, our, our sinful nature, the desire to live without God. All of us live that way, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, listen carefully. Here's the point. Only those who've been freed, only those who've been freed can appreciate to the full the desolation of his past slavery. Only those who freed can really appreciate that freedom when they recognize what they were. The point is, before we rebel against authority, speak evil of others, know what we need to do? Before we look to fight everyone, we know what we need to do. We need to look and say, if not the grace of God, there go I. Paul says, not only are we slaves, but we are passing our days in malice and envy. Two dreadful twins. <laughs> malice and envy. Malice. It's just not uh, um, mischief. 
That word means wicked or evil disposition of the mind. Envy, resenting, and coveting what, what someone else has, fueled by your dissatisfaction of your own stuff, your own position, your own power, your own possession, and you compare it to someone else, and there's, there's envy, malice. It was in part, in part, envy caused the murder of Abel, if you read in Genesis. Envy partly threw Joseph into a pit of his brothers were envious. Saul pursued David out of envy. It produced the bitter words spoken by the elder brother in the parable of the, of the, of the prodigal son to his father. It was envy. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy or boast. Hmm. Finally, look what he says here. Hated by others and, and hating one another. If you live a life of malice, this is the way I take the passage. If you live a life of, of, of malice and you're living a life of envy, you're not going to have a lot of loving friendships. <laughs> Hated by others and hating one another. Yeah, you see someone who is completely envious and, and malicious in all that they do, they're not going to have a lot of friends around. We see this contrast of Paul. What verses 1 and 2, what people should live like, how they should express themselves, how they live in the world. And then verse 3, what they once were. And we see this contrast between submissiveness and foolishness and obedience and disobedience. Between a readiness to, to do good and an enslavement to evil. We see kindness and, and peaceableness and then envy and malice. We see humble and gentle, and yet hating and being hated. All this to say, as we live on mission, as we live on mission, demonstrating, declaring the gospel, we should humble ourselves and remember where we came from. And before we have an attitude of rebellion, I speak as if I'm speaking to myself, we speak or we tweet or we post something that is mean and unkind, we really need to take a good, hard look within. I need to take a good, hard look within. Paul is saying that when you have an attitude of submission, an attitude of ready to do good works, when you're kind in your speech, when you're not argumentative but gentle and respectful, you've shown the world that the grace of God is in you. You show the world that gospel transformation is happening in you. Because the truth is, if not for the grace of God, there I go I, in slavery to my own destructive passions and pleasures. Let me go back. Can you go back uh, to salvation by the mercy of God? Number three. Submission to those in authority, slavery from former passion, salvation by the mercy of God. Look at verse four. Everything changes. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Paul now, just like in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, proceeds to explain the reason, the motive behind the things that are to be expected of believers. It is the goodness of God. It is the loving kindness of God our Savior. It is the work that God has done in our salvation. He goes from this is what you were in slavery, in your passion. You were, you were a slave to your sin. You were a slave to passions and pleasures. And now look what God has done. The work of God alone in salvation. He saved you. 
The same thing in chapter 2, verse 11. This appearance is clearly, clearly talking about the historical coming of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his brutal death, his resurrection from the grave. That's what he's talking about. The man who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The atonement of Christ. And we move from this hating and being hated to this amazing love of God. Now, verses 4 through 7, it's just one long sentence in the Greek. And in verse 5a, we find the main verb that drives the passage. He saved us. He saved us. Aorist active indicative it implies a completed action in the past that continues. The completed work of Christ has been done. And Paul says, listen. It's a fact of God's saving achievement in Christ that we want to magnify. It is, it is the reality of the work of Christ in salvation that we want to make known. And then Paul goes on. If you, if you see the rest of the sentence, he clarifies. What, what, what does it mean he saved us? And now all that proceeds from verse 4 of 5a speaks about that salvation. But, but look, with, look with me just for a moment. And we'll look at that. But look, just, just for a moment, look at, the, look at what Paul says and gives us a description of who God is. Okay? The goodness of God. God is good. Better word, generous. When the goodness of God, the generosity of God, the generosity given to the ungrateful, undeserving, the goodness of God. He's good. He's also loving. The word love here is not agape. Doesn't mean he's not agape, but it's not agape. It's philanthropia, uh, where we get Philadelphia, the brotherly love, that God loves people, loves mankind. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. Down in verse 5, not getting what we deserve. He's helping the helpless who cannot help themselves. The good God, a loving God, a merciful God. Down to verse 7, he's a God of grace, reaching out, giving us what we don't deserve. Giving the guilty and the undeserving sinners a renewed and restored relationship. He's good. He is loving. He is merciful. And he is gracious. And it gets right to the heart of salvation. Salvation has been initiated by that God. By the God of kindness. By the God of love. By the God of mercy. By the God of grace on our behalf. He rescued us from our predicament. Look what it says. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, that word but, Allah, the strongest conjunction showing the greatest contrast, but, not by works done in righteousness, but, completely opposite, according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul left no doubt Concerning the basis of our salvation is the work of God in our salvation. It's not us working together with God. It's not like God threw us a lifeline and we're drowning and we're able to grab the rope and with one tug as he pulls and one jump as we jump, we're out of the water. That's not what this says. Okay? No, God's throwing a rope and we're sucking in water, drowning, and no way can we have an ability to pull ourselves up and God Saves us. Not by, not done by deeds of righteousness. Very important word. If you remember, 
we did the book of Galatians, when Paul talks about not because of works done by us in righteousness, he has in mind first and foremost the law. Remember the Pharisees of that day, uh, the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party in the book of Titus, were teaching a works-based salvation through the law, get circumcised or follow the Jewish customs, the dietary uh, customs, and you will be saved. Nope, Paul said, nope, it's not by the law. It, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. I think Paul here talking to the people of Crete, it means more than that. It means any moral behavior, it means any possible moral accomplishment and somehow, some way, will achieve some sort of salvation with God. Paul could not be more clear in addressing the matter of the base of one's salvation, saying that people cannot and will not save themselves. Here's the problem. Our heart, our pride, wants to help. We want to take part. You know what? If you're telling me salvation is a totally a free gift of God, totally from him and me, and I have nothing to do with it, if you're telling me that, then I, well, I, I, want, I want a piece of it. I want to exalt my way. I love to exalt ourselves. I did something. Paul says, no, 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 you didn't. People cannot save themselves. We like to believe that doing more good than bad good, <laughs> the more good than bad deeds, or living up to some moral standard that we in our own mind put together, not like so-and-so sitting next to me or the one behind me, at least, at least give me something, some sort of help, some sort of effort so, so that when I receive God's love and forgiveness and, and he accepts me, I, I have a small part in it. Paul annihilates that. Our salvation is not because of works, righteousness we have done, but solely the mercy and the compassion of God by the washing, look what it says, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful phrase. The inner purification God provides by grace, causes new life, new birth, and it's by the work of God alone. Now, what Paul calls here regeneration renewal. See what he says? Washing, that, that inner purification, how? By the regeneration... Pauline Genesia, Pauline meaning again, Genesia or Genesis, birth, a new birth, or, or born again, that's where we get that term. And renewal, the word renewal means something that has been caused to be brand new. So you have a new birth and something born new. Okay? Right in that one sentence. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians, right? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, and behold... The new has come. This washing, this internal cleansing is the experience of being born anew, born again. Reminds us of John 3, right? Nicodemus says to Jesus, how am I getting in? How can a man be saved? How can I get it to the kingdom? Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You won't see it. You won't enter in unless you're born again of the spirit and the water. Now, Paul and Nicodemus, Pharisees, Bible thumpers, know their Bibles and recognize when Jesus said that, that he's pointing to the very words spoken to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, pointing to the reality of the new covenant. That's the new covenant promise. 
Jesus is just sharing what has already been said in his own words through the gospel, through his perfect work on the cross as a way into a new relationship with God through the new covenant. Let me read to you Ezekiel's words written hundreds of years before. Ezekiel 36 is this, God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. We're not talking about external, we're talking internal. And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit. I'll put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, that promise is fulfilled in me. That's how you get into the kingdom. Titus is being told by Paul to tell the churches that the work of God through the gospel, through the appearance, the person work of Christ, was through him, and you can receive new birth. Born again. Cleansing, washing, renewal through Christ, whom, verse 6, he, God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice in that text, Notice the work of the triune God, right? Notice that. Each person of the Trinity is referred to in this passage, in the salvific passage, speaking about salvation. It is God the Father who poured out God the Holy Spirit through God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in your salvation. It's right there in the text. This pouring out, reminding of Pentecost, the, the work of salvation, this renewed work, the pouring out of one spirit, how all believers share in the baptism the spiritual baptism, born anew, born again, through the work of Jesus. And it is richly, I love that, richly. It's abundant. It's sufficient. And if that's not enough, listen, if that does not get you excited and pumped and have a heart filled with gratitude, it gets better. Look what, the, what else has been accomplished through this washing and regeneration and renewal. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. Okay? Don't skip that. Underline that. Okay? Justification. Very important biblical word. Justification, right? We talk about it here often. It, 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 is, it is a very important word. It, it is the, at the heart of the great reformation. To be justified means to be declared righteous. I mentioned this before. Let me just say it again. It helps me to remember what justification is. Very important. It's two sides of one coin. Two sides, one coin, two sides. The word justification means on one side, and we've done this before, but let me, let me just break it down to you if you're new here. On one side of the coin of justification, the Bible teaches that we are, in the moment we receive Christ, his atoning work on the cross, we are completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. We are pardoned of all our sins. It is a declaration of being just in the courtroom of God, our judge. Because of the substitutionary atonement, forgiveness of our sins that Christ took on himself on the cross, we have been forgiven. Just as we have never sinned, forgiven of our sins. We are not made justified, we are declared justified, forgiven, pardoned. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, sometimes we forget this, is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul talks about the righteousness. It's not the infusing of righteousness if somehow we get it. It's the imputation of righteousness that's been counted to our account, has been attributed to us and transferred to us from Christ's righteous life to our sinful life. It's imputed to us by faith. 
But whatever gain I have counted as loss, Paul says in Philippians, for the sake of Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, and he was a lawman, but what comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, hear, hear me out. Forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. You can be forgiven of sins but not made right. You're still not perfect. You're still not qualified. You're still not able to enter into the presence of a holy God simply because your sins are forgiven. You need the righteousness that you can't get, I can't earn, and we get that by faith in the perfect earned righteousness of Christ. So why are we trying to add to that? He doesn't see our sin, but he sees Christ's righteousness by faith. God delights in us through the Son. Salvation is not done by our own deeds, but the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. God never justifies us without regenerating us and never regenerates us without justifying us. And what is the gain? We are justified by grace. We become heirs. Heirs of the hope of eternal life. We're heirs. In other words, we're sons. We're daughters. We're children. God's work of salvation brings us into his family, and we are adopted, and we are heirs. We're waiting, yes, we're waiting for that final day when, when the kingdom of God will come to earth and we will be established, and that's our eternal life with him. We're waiting on that day. We'll experience that fuller measure in that day, but it's guaranteed. It is our hope, not maybe, but guaranteed hope. And we're in the process of that. A beautiful description of God's grace should stir our hearts. The beautiful description of God's salvation by grace alone should stir our hearts and our affections. And, and, and we should have this enormous gratitude of thanksgiving. And that propels us into the world. Let me just end a couple of minutes and we're closed. We're going to pick this verse up next week. This is a trustworthy saying. I insist that you say these things. I insist that you teach these things. Now, when Paul says the saying is trustworthy, he says it five times in his epistles. Very common. What he's saying is, what, what, I, what I've just said is trustworthy. It is dependable. It's reliable. The kindness of God the Father. The love he has for us. The work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us. The grace of Christ that's shown to us in the cross for our justification. The heirs, the hope of life. These are trustworthy things. I insist. Preach them. Teach them. With confidence, that word means. With confidence. And now, what is that purpose? Look what it says. Please, family. So that those who believed in God may be what? Careful. Pay close attention, that word means. In our devotion to good works. So it's very important that you catch this as we close. After the description of the glory and beauty and majestic salvation that God has given to us in the work of our salvation solely done by him. He's not finished with the topic. Paul presses upon his readers the underlying and indispensable necessity of good works for those who profess to know him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that you will never boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Come on, family. Good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Warren Worsby, the best way a local church has to witness to the lost is through the sacrificial service of its members. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and let let me just say one last thing as we go to worship, as we go to continue to worship in song. Family, that is our mission, right? That is our mission. Go and do good. Go and do good deeds. Not to get God to love you. Not to earn his acceptance, but because he has already. You are free. We are free from condemnation. We are freed from doing good like we are on a treadmill trying to earn the favor of God. The treadmill is over. It is because of the favor of God we are to do good, to love and to serve others, always remembering that our good deeds could never atone for our sins. Our good deeds could never reap a harvest of grace. But the truth about grace, the truth about the gospel, leads us with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. And that true godliness flows by grace. From love of and love for God. And that's why Paul ends this time. We'll spend more time on it next week. Sharing the gospel and saying, now go do good in the gospel. Tim Keller who is, really does a great job talking about things of this nature, uh, the motivation of the gospel. He said this famous words. He says, religion says, in other words, I'm trying to earn my salvation. Religion says, I obey, and therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, and therefore I obey. He says, religion, that's works-based salvation. Religion is motivated based upon fear and insecurity. God may not like me, and i got to really try hard. That's religion. But the gospel's motivation, he says, is based on grateful joy. What a difference. We've got to get it right. We've got to get it right. But we've got to go out and do for the right reasons, the right motives. And it's the gospel. Let's stand together. Let's respond. We can. And sing this with our whole heart to the Lord. He's all we have. He's all we need.